Let's continue in chapter 1. We're at verse 12. Verses 12 to 17. In 12 to 17, Paul expresses his thankfulness for his conversion and apostolic commission. You'll notice in the last half of this chapter that Paul talks about himself, and then he will talk about himself in contrast to the false teachers at the end of the chapter. Although he has spoken in general terms and basic terms before, now he's getting specific about who all is implied by this doctrine, the true doctrine and the false doctrine. First, the true doctrine as manifested in the apostle. And he's thankful to God for it. Verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He strengthened Christ Jesus. He praises Christ Jesus for strengthening him because Christ considered him faithful, putting him into service. He considered him faithful. He gave him faith and he increased that faith in him so that he might be commissioned as an apostle of Christ. And verse 13, the background of Paul. He admits, he knows, that he used to be a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He used to slander God, blaspheme God. He used to persecute the church of God. And he used to persecute to the point of violent aggression. He promoted, he favored the persecution and the murder of Christians. When Stephen was murdered, stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, Paul the Apostle was there. And he promoted it, and as we read earlier in in, uh, Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus to do that even more. Yet, Christ intervened. As we read in Acts 9, he intervened, it says in verse 13, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was shown mercy. Christ intervened. He intercepted Paul. Christ is the one who goaded him. Christ is the one who caught his attention suddenly by a miraculous vision. Paul wasn't seeking this. Christ intercepted him. Christ is the one who stopped him in his tracks. And it says it that he was acting ignorantly in unbelief. Why did Christ do so for Paul? Because he says here, it was in unbelief. Ignorant unbelief. What does he mean by doing so ignorantly and unbelief? Examples. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26. When he says he acted ignorantly in unbelief, he means... It was not as though he had the full knowledge of the truth given to him and revealed to him, and then after he received it, he trampled it underfoot. He did not do that. Verse 26, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit 
of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In this passage, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sins. Verse 26. Paul did not sin in this way. That's why mercy was available. He was not in an obstinate, unbelieving uh, way having the full knowledge of the truth. He was not in that position. He was acting ignorantly in unbelief. One more example is 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2.20 2 Peter 2.20 This again is an example of what Paul was not. He was not acting deliberately, willfully. He did have unbelief, but it was not acting ignorantly in unbelief. 2 Peter 2.20 For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Here, in this case, these people are described as escaping the defilements of the world temporarily. They had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet they went back. They resorted back to their old ways and continue in those old ways. And he says in 21, it would have been better for them not to have known this way of righteousness. But they did know it, and then they rejected it. And they were dogs and hogs. They were that by nature. Temporarily they were washed, but just like a hog does not like to be clean, returns to wallowing in the mire. So the same with these people. In the case of Paul, he was not like that. He acted ignorantly. He did not have the full knowledge and willfully reject that full knowledge. Or he didn't have that full knowledge, pretend to embrace it temporarily, and then reject it later. Truly reject it later. He didn't do it that way. And this is why he says here in verse chapter 1, verse 13, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, so Christ showed him mercy. 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. However evil he used to be, the grace of Christ was more than abundant to resolve that evil, to forgive that evil, so that his sins were forgiven. Christ was able, by his own atonement, by his own death, overcome the evil of the apostle, so that he had an abundant amount of grace in his life, so that he no longer was in a state of condemnation. And, not only that, but he granted him faith and love. Faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. The, the faith and love are gifts of God. As it says, 
that uh, in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. To you it has been granted. Faith was granted to Paul. Paul did not generate it on his own. It came as a gift from heaven. And also love, it says, with the lo- faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.19, We love because He first loved us. The first act of love that we experience is when God intervenes by His Holy Spirit to change our heart so that we believe in the Gospel. That act of love is what Paul experienced. And these are found in Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus. Christ Jesus. They're found in Him. They're not found in anyone else. Only in Christ. And 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Here again, the Apostle finds it necessary to assert the trustworthiness of what he's about to say. The trustworthiness, because there are people who are prone to doubt the word of the Apostle, the word of Paul. They have their own ideas of what's true and right. They have their own human wisdom. But Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not in that same category because Christ showered His grace upon me, His mercy upon me, he commissioned me, He strengthened me, He made me faithful, put, considered me faithful, and put me into service. I'm in a different category. Not because of my goodness, but because of Christ's goodness. So, this is a trustworthy statement. Because it's trustworthy, it deserves full acceptance. All of us, whoever hears, whoever reads, whoever knows this, we should fully accept what is being said what is being taught. Fully accept it. Not partially. Not 99%. But fully embrace it. 15. And this is what he wants us to embrace. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ was in heaven above. He possesses deity from eternity past to eternity future. He's the second person of the Trinity. He had eternal glory. But at the right time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. He came into the world. And when He came into the world, He came to save sinners. He did not come to give them prosperity and good health all the time. He did not come to give them a great self-esteem. He did not come to give them economic equality. He did not come to give them social justice, whatever that word means in the modern era. He did not come to give those kinds of things. He came to save sinners. We needed salvation. Salvation because hell awaits Eternal punishment awaits those who don't know Christ. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are only two outcomes for all people, either eternal life or eternal punishment. He came to save us. He came to save sinners. Here too, it's good that Christ came into the world. It's good that He came to save us. It's good that it was God who came in human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 It's good. 
But we also have to acknowledge that we are sinners. He came to save sinners. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to acknowledge our need to be saved from sin and that Christ is the only one who can save us from sin. This simple message, this gospel that he summarizes in verse 15 is is the only means of our salvation. He says it is found in Christ Jesus, verse 14. In verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's only found in Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6, and Acts 4, 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And even in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, 1 Timothy 2, 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. The apostle is asserting here, as Jesus asserted in John 14, 6, that there's only one way of salvation, and that way is found in Christ. He came into the world so that the sinners of the world might be saved only through Christ, the Savior of the world. The salvation is not found in any other religion, in any other person, in any other locality in the world. It does not originate from within man. It originates from God who came into the world to save sinners. This is the way of salvation. Now among these sinners, the apostle asserts that he is the foremost of all. He's the foremost of all sinners. He knows that he was a vile and wretched sinner and even now that he still commits sin and that he is in need of Christ all the time, daily. He is the foremost of sinners. But why is it that Christ saved Paul? Why is it? He saved him, we know from verse 12, to put him into service. We know from Acts 9 that he might be commissioned as an apostle to preach and teach. We know that in, in verse 1 that he's called an apostle according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ. We know all that. But there's an additional reason. Verse 16. An additional reason why Paul himself was chosen to be one of the most prominently known apostles. Why was it Paul? Verse 16 explains, And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Why did Christ choose such a blasphemer, persecutor, and violent aggressor? Why did he choose such a man and change him, transform him? Why did he choose such a man? He chose such a man to be the most known apostle for this reason, that Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. Christ could have 
executed Paul on the spot any number of times up until his conversion. <coughs> he could have done so. He could have done so at the stoning of Stephen. He could have done so, but he exerted, demonstrated his perfect patience towards Paul. Why? As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. As an example for you and me and for everyone else who hears about this gospel. Because there are many of us who have lived in sin, who did live in sin, and we wondered, we thought, and we also encounter people today who wonder and think, can I be forgiven? Will Christ forgive me? Is there hope for me? Can He transform me? I love my sin so much. I, do I, will I have power? I struggle against it. Will I have power? Will He help? Will He be able to take that which is impure and make it pure? Will He be able to do that? And the answer, according to verse 16, it's the reason Paul was chosen is so that he might be an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So that all of us might see that if Christ could save Paul, he could save you and me. He could save any of us from our sins so that we might have eternal life. And for all this, for what he has done in saving Paul, and commissioning Paul, he says in 17, all the glory is to God. Yes, I, it, he needed to say some things about himself for the sake of illustration and example, but he re recognizes that it's not his glory he's seeking, he's seeking God's. Verse 17, Now to the king eternal, Paul is no king, Paul is not eternal, immortal, Paul's not that, God is. Invisible, Paul's not that, God is. The only God. Paul's not God. Don't make him into a God. Men don't become gods. So don't follow Paul because he's God. Follow the only God. And only to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> follow the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God to whom honor and glory is due forever and ever. Amen. Now this is what happened and this is the, the example of the Apostle. Now look at 18 to 20. He'll first encourage Timothy to do likewise and then explain the contrast. Verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies pre previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. This section is a command to fight the good fight for Timothy. What faith Paul is fighting for and keeping, he's calling on Timothy to do the same. He has been doing it, but he needs to be reminded to do it more, to pre uh, persevere, to press on, to do so until the end. Timothy has had Prophecies previously made concerning him. Prophecies concerning his life and ministry, perhaps. It doesn't tell us exactly what those prophecies were. But they were made about him. Perhaps at his conversion, uh, or otherwise at his commission to the ministry. These prophecies were made 
And there it says in verse 18 that by them you may fight the good fight. Well, since God has revealed these truths about you, Timothy, it's incumbent upon you, Timothy, to fight the good fight. Not all fights are good fights. Not all arguments are good arguments. Find the good fight. The good fight is to hold up the faith, to hold up the gospel, to defend the gospel. For we are destroying speculations and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We are supposed to fight the fight of promoting the gospel. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's not evil, it's not unloving and ungracious and unkind, it's not contentious in a bad way, it's not contentious to fight the good fight of holding up the gospel as sound doctrine and whatever seeks to undermine it, to reject it. To show why it's wrong so that people might be saved from their sins. Verse 19. This includes keeping faith. Keeping faith. The faith that was given, entrusted, deposited into our care, into Timothy's care, needs to be held on to, needs to be protected, needs to be promoted, and a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. The Apostle has spoken of this good conscience earlier, but this is common for the Apostle Paul to speak of having uh, a good conscience. For example, Romans 9 verse 1. Romans 9 verse 1. This is the kind of good conscience we should have when we preach the gospel. Romans 9.1 I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. The people of Israel who had all of the blessings of God, verses 4 to 5, many of them did not believe, and in his conscience, he sincerely desired, without any kind of malice, with any kind of guile, with any kind of duplicity, he desired for them to be saved. He prayed for them. He labored for them. He did whatever he could to promote the truth of the gospel to them. This is the same kind of good conscience Timothy is supposed to have and we're supposed to have. We're supposed to promote the gospel this way. Not for self-interest, but for the benefit of others, that they might be saved and for the glory of God. However, some people reject it. And that's what we see in 19 and 20. He says, Some have rejected, which some have rejected, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. They have rejected these truths. Whatever he has said so far, 
they have turned aside from it. They don't want to do it. They don't want anything to do with it anymore. And therefore, they suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith. They made a profession of faith. They said, yes, they said that they wanted to follow Christ. They said they wanted to be forgiven of sin. Something like that initially happened to them, but now the ship, though it, it, it uh, did disembark, it went out to sea, and now they're not ready to deal with the storms and the waves of the sea, and the ship is, the ship is suffering shipwreck. That is their faith. They're not ready to deal with all of the onslaughts that are out there. Perhaps they were influenced by other certain men. Perhaps they were influenced by the the some men. Others who were persuading them through peer pressure to do it this way, to do it that way. No, no, no. Don't believe what Paul said. Don't, Don't believe that way. Believe this other way. This is the right way. This is the true way. And here he says they have suffered shipwreck. He even names them. These two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Regarding Hymenaeus, we have an example of his false teaching in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll start at 14, 2.14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness." And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And thus they upset the faith of some. These wranglers are named here Hymenaeus and Philetus. Whatever chatter and empty talk they have, they have been spreading it like gangrene. And they have gone astray from the truth, verse 18. Specifically, the one doctrine he mentions is these false teachers were saying the resurrection has already taken place. The resurrection, the resurrection that Christ preached, the prophets preached, that the apostles preached, the resurrection, it already happened. And the people were confused. Their faith was upset. They didn't know what to believe. How could the resurrection have already taken place? Did the resurrection already take place? They're promoting this false doctrine and upsetting the faith of others. And then in regards to Alexander, Alexander is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, He's also mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Alexander the coppersmith, he did 
the apostle much harm, God will repay him. Paul is confident of this. And why mention Alexander? Not only because Paul was negatively impacted by him, but 15, be on guard against him yourself. Not only is he harming Paul, but he will harm you, and he will harm other people. Like it said in 2 Timothy 2, their talk will spread like gangrene. The disease spreads from a small part of the body, a section of the body, it goes to other parts of the body, and then it is lethal. It takes away the life. Now, he says, he also vigorously opposed our teaching. He was not just here or there saying a little this or a little that. He was vigorously opposing the gospel. Those who vigorously oppose the gospel also need to be withstood. They need to be fought against. The good fight of faith has to also be against them. Don't be intimidated by those kinds of people, which was one of Timothy's problems, intimidation. 2 Timothy 1 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. No, Don't fear what the false teachers say. Don't fear what they do, even those who vigorously oppose the truth. Don't fear. Fight the good fight. Well, these two men, Paul knowing their wickedness, they once embraced the faith, now they reject it. Unlike Paul, they're not like the Second Timothy uh, or the Second Peter two twenty to twenty two kind of people, who were cleaned for a while like a hog is, and then became dirty again. They're not like that. Uh, Paul was not like that. These men were like that. Hymenaeus and Alexander were like the Second Timothy two twenty to twenty two, like those people, and because they're like that. Paul has delivered them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. To deliver over to Satan is also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it means to expel from the church. To expel from the church so that they might be outside of the church and not inside considered a brother in Christ but outside the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. In this case, the man is committing sexual immorality and unrepentant sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In the same way, Hymenaeus and Alexander were to be disassociated from the local church so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. When they feel the sting of that separation, when they feel the sting of expulsion from the church, 
and the, the isolation, they ought to be mindful of the fact that they are blaspheming God, therefore they received that kind of treatment. That is the prayer. That is the hope. That they might be taught not to blaspheme, not do it anymore, repent, and seek repentance in the church and reconciliation back in the local church.